Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I think we have a really important episode for you um, from my friend Gretchen Evans, who's joining us via Zoom from Tucson, Arizona. Welcome to the podcast, Gretchen. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And um, I'm seeing Gretchen on my screen. Um, she's bright and full of life, and but we'll be talking about a very difficult subject. Um, Gretchen has sort of had an um, immense, unimaginable tragedy come into her life. Um, she lost her younger brother, Jake Norman. Um, Gretchen is Gretchen Evans married, but her maiden name is Norman. So her younger brother, Jake Norman, while at BYU, a return missionary from Quebec, um, Canada died by suicide in May of 2019 at the age of 23. And then um, how much longer until the next tragedy happened? You told me before we went live. Yeah, two months, exactly. Yeah. So two months later, her older sister, Elena, was driving with her twin girls, 18-month-old. So imagine these three in a car in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, driving home from church and were hit by a semi and all three of them were killed. And so Gretchen's, you know, lost four dear people in her life and I'm already emotional, her younger brother, older sister. She has her surviving brother and these two nieces, Ruby and June. And um, the purpose of doing this podcast is just, um, Gretchen's been on this road for a couple years now and if you've kind of had an unimaginable loss, I, our hope is the things Gretchen shares with you will be helpful for you. Um, and just the journey that she's making her way forward as a active Latter-day Saint and also creating boundaries for herself of what she can or can't do. Perhaps those of you that are suicidal and figuring, feeling that may be your path forward, um, perhaps some of the things she shares about her brother Jake and where he was and will help you to perhaps have a little more hope and some tools and some resources to consider a different path and kind of pull you out of that dark spot you're in right now. Um, so is that okay for an introduction, Gretchen? Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you to, to talk. All right. So um, I guess starting out, just wanted to, to um, share a bit about my family bit about how he grew up. So, um, let's see, there's, I've got my mom and my dad and then four kids total. So my older sister, Alana, me, my younger brother, Tyler, and then my youngest brother, Jacob. And growing up, we were all very close. The girls shared a room, the boys shared a room. Um, we're all two years apart. And, um, I feel like we were just raised in a way where, that really encouraged us all to be friends with each other, to play with each other, um, and, and enjoy one another. I think something too, um, that's, that I really appreciate now is, um, my parents really encouraged us to talk about our feelings. Um, we have all at one point been in therapy, uh, just even just, it's good to do for a mental health check-in. So. Um, and then just on top of that, my relationship specifically with Alana. So we shared a room for 19 years because wow. uh, when I turned 18, we moved out together to Arizona and um, we're very different. I tend to be more 
outgoing, more very chatty, very, um, I've always been a very emotional person, very attuned to my emotions, had a strong need to share how I'm feeling. And um, Alana, she, she had much more control, I would say, over her expressing herself. That's something I really had to learn. And she is just a very patient, loving, um, soft person. And, um, you know, growing up, she was very naturally obedient. I'm the one that, that needs to let everyone know how I feel. And something that is really wonderful to me now looking back on is we were never compared by our parents. I was never told to be more like Alana. It was always made clear that we each had our own strengths. And then I think too, in my relationship with Alana, something um, that I really miss is the level of acceptance we had for each other and appreciation for our different qualities. Um, We would talk about when we moved out of the house, how well our different personalities balanced each other and and how it really created this close relationship because during times when she wouldn't want to be open, even about simple things like who she had a crush on, I would, I'm just that kind of person or kind of sister who'd be like, no, like, tell me, who do you like? Who's cute? Like, there's got to be someone. So we were just extremely close, extremely, um, yeah, just a relationship of complete love and acceptance and, and trust. Um, and then with my brother, Jacob, so he, he also has that very peace loving nature that Alana has, and he's also very outgoing. Like me, we both get very enthusiastic. We love to, we love to sing loudly together, to dance together, to, um, we're just those type of people when we're together, our voices will just get, would just get louder and louder because we're just we just like, you know, our energy would kind of feed off of each other. And, and so I feel like we were really similar in a lot of ways in the ways we would tease and joke. And, um, since he was four years younger than me, there was definitely like a time when I was a teenager, when I was a really bad tease to him, like I was a really bad tease. And as we got older, and I kind of like realized that when I was like an older teenager, I'd be like, Jake, I'm so sorry. I used to tease you so bad. And he would love to kind of like guilt me for it and be like, you totally did. And he'd be like, um, kind of, you owe me. And maybe we'd be like playing video games together. And he'd be like, I'm thirsty. I need a drink of water. And I would be like, okay, I'm getting you that drink of water. Cause that's how I kind of would, um, I guess be like, I'm so sorry. Like, um, so we did that for a couple of years. And then I feel like as we got older, just enjoyed more. We, we had a really similar taste in music. Um, we love to talk. So we would love to talk on the phone together. And we just also had a really close friendship. So, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of like the landscape for where family was before all these tragedies happened. Um, And then throughout life, even as adults, like um, our parents would have like family councils when we'd go through things as a family or as individuals. And we'd all talk to each other about how we were doing and what was going on in life and also just play games together and have fun. So we were just very tight knit. Um, Both of my parents have had complicated things happen in their extended family. 
So I feel like they were really intentional about creating a space where we could talk openly about life. Um, actually, the Sunday before Jake died, we had a, a like just a little family FaceTime chat where we were all talking and laughing. And, you know, I feel like something that, you know, I guess just going into now Jake's suicide, I felt so much judgment when Jake died by suicide that my family must be a certain way. He must not have had support. And I think now looking at it, I think a lot of those judgments come from a place of it can bring comfort to the person seeing this happen where they think, you know what, if I do these right things, this won't happen to me, you know, and that's understandable, right? We all want to feel safe. And something that has been really terrifying to me about Jake's suicide is I, I look at the way we were brought up and I, I'm like, wow, <laughs> like, especially for, you know, I feel like now therapy, people are talking about it more openly, but I just look back and I just think, I really don't know what would, you know, I, I learning about suicide, suicide is not people's, the fault of like the support system that that person had. And I think a lot of times so much blame is, is placed on the support system. I even feel that way sometimes when looking at, um, just suicide prevention things. I don't think it's meant, but it can often often feel like, well, if I had seen these these flags, I could have stopped the suicide. Um, I guess now talking about Jake's suicide, Jake's suicide was completely out of the blue. Um, his close friends were shocked. Um, it really was just completely out of the blue. Um, you know, he didn't show up for school and work, which was extremely unlike him. I mean, Jake, he was just a very reliable person, very, um, Jake was very charismatic, very loving to people. Um, he was actually voted, I think, homecoming king in high school. And, and it's funny because, I mean, he's definitely like, he was definitely a cool kid, but I also think part of it is he just, he loved people and you could feel that when, when being with him, I remember if, if we were at the grocery store and we saw someone we knew, if maybe I would feel like, Oh, I, I don't want to talk to them. I just want to like go home, buy our stuff, like whatever. Jake would like want to talk to them because he enjoyed them. Even if they were like the awkward person that you like, don't know how to talk to. Jake would truly enjoy that interaction because he, I think he just saw people for, for who they are, which is just, in, everyone has like this innate worth, right? And, and yeah, he, he was so good at seeing that. So I think, yeah, just um, his suicide was so unexpected because I think everyone felt so loved by him. He, he was very enthusiastic and he, he definitely was stressed, I would say, in his, his last months of... Um, he was stressed about school and about the future, you know, thinking about applying to law school, um, stressed about dating, stressed about, um, yeah, he definitely had stresses, but 
again, we were, our family was so close. He had wonderful friends who he was very close with and, and no one knew. And yeah. Um, this is really helpful. I wrote down a few things you said word for word. It's not the fault of the support system. It's a pretty good line, Gretchen, because I love why your parents and you aren't perfect. I do think yeah, you're totally. communicating a pretty um, healthy framework um, with your parents and being aware of complicated things in their extended family and wanted to create a really safe, welcoming environment that you talk that existed. And um, I think that that's, um, and I love the way you talk about your family and and the support system was there. And this is just the reality of what happens in really good families. And I do agree that sometimes to keep ourselves emotionally safe, we want to find a backstory of what was actually dysfunctional. I'm sorry to use that word about your family yeah. that actually caused this to happen because our family is not dysfunctional. So now we know. That though, but your families. This happens in families that are with just great families, mm-hmm. and so I think it causes us all just to be a little more careful when someone has lost someone to suicide, and also to want to develop potentially better understanding of that possibility within our own family. Even though your family mm-hmm. did a really good job, and um, so and I love the way you honor this young man, twenty-three-year-old, and. I wish yeah. listeners could see Gretchen just smile about Jacob and the good man he is. I like to use present terms, listeners, when someone's gone generally, because um, I, I, they they still exist. They may not be here in mortality, the way we know. But I like to use is Jake the good man that Jake is and the good things he's doing. Um, just more on Jacob that comes to your mind. Um. You know, so something that I think um, was hard following his death is how similar me and Jake are. Um, It made me feel really confused because, you know, Jake, I will say he, so he was someone who I think people really looked at and thought, man, Jake, Jake is like perfect. I, he was that, he was handsome, kind, charismatic, extremely smart. And something I do know about Jake is he was a perfectionist for sure. He was a perfectionist, put a lot of pressure on himself. And um, man, it just, it breaks my heart to, to, to think about that that pressure he might have felt that that would prohibit him from sometimes being honest about the hard things he was feeling um you know he he was a very emotional person whenever he'd watch like sad movies and i'd be like oh did you watch this movie he's like yeah i totally cried i admit it like he just very emotional but was always kind of bashful about it because i think you know you look at our culture and our and the way we talk i think about men and emotions and and things like that so i feel like jake and and 
remembering his perfectionism, also the, the, um, kind of, yeah, this, this idea that being a good person is being happy and being there for other people. I feel like, um, a way for me to honor him has become me being really aware of these, these aspects of the culture and, and trying not to put these pressures on myself or others around me that I love. Um, because he was someone that was so admired. And I think sometimes when we admire people, we, without meaning to just decide that they are like stronger than us or are happier than us or can deal with their, their hard things better than we can. And I, and, um, yeah, I feel like Jake's suicide, it's really kind of woken me up a little bit more to how dangerous that, that can be when we admire someone, all the pressure we might be inadvertently putting on them. I think that's really insightful. And we sometimes have a toxic perfectionism culture that for some people is fine, but for others, given their personality, can be really difficult. Um, and then if they're sort of meeting the expectation of that culture expectation outwardly and some more times inwardly, but then over time are not able to match that expectation, that can create some dissidence and just that you're kind of describing. And even though you've got a family culture that's pretty accepting, there's a broader culture sometimes that that isn't controllable <laughs> by a family. Definitely. Yeah. And can I think you're connecting some dots here. Um, I'm kind of looking at some of your notes here. I'd love you to talk about, mm -hmm. um, with Jake's death, you became more of me aware of mental health and about platitudes and things we say that are so damaging to mental health. Do you want to go into that? Yes, more? definitely. So, um, you know, both of, both of the death experiences I've had with all four people, they've, they're very traumatic deaths. And, um, as someone who is just naturally very emotional, I'm also a very visual person. Um, I experienced, um, some really bad PTSD symptoms. Um, I've had hallucinations. I, I have been felt suicidal, which is very common for people who have lost someone to suicide. Um, I, I've had pan, I have panic attacks that, you know, so the, the effects of this trauma is very real. And after Jake's death, I remember just feeling so afraid of my own mind and body. Um, and then people who were definitely well-intentioned would then say things like, if I was sad, they would say, you know, be grateful, focus on what you have. And that really hurt because it felt like a judgment. Like you are not feeling well because you're not being grateful enough, you know, and, um, or even things like something that is actually very painful for me is, is when people are like, well, it must be so comforting for you to know he is in heaven or with God. And the reality is, you know, I, I would say I used to be someone who my whole life, I just believed in God. Um, I wouldn't even say it was because of the church or whatnot. I think I was just born with that. Um, like when I was a little girl and would get scared in the, uh, in the dark, I 
made up a little song I would sing to God. Like, I think that's just part of how I was born. It's not because I'm like this great person or something. Um, but I always just felt like, yes, I, I, I've, I've never struggled with is God real or not. And then when Jake died, I was like, I don't know if God is real and I don't know where Jacob is. And I didn't feel like there was room for that. I feel like when people would talk to me, they didn't want to know how I was feeling. They wanted to tell me, but you're okay. Right. And they wanted me to also almost confirm, yeah, I'm fine. This is hard, but I'm okay. And it didn't leave room for me to be honest about how, how I was doing. And I think that made me also really concerned with the view of Jake's suicide thinking if people come to someone and say, Hey, I'm depressed. And that person says, but you know, God loves you, right? There's no room in that to say, no, I don't, I don't know that. I don't feel that way. And so I became really concerned. I think more so than specific platitudes, just overall how these conversations would go where there wasn't really space to truly listen to what people were experiencing and to truly create space for how scary life can be, how dark it can feel, and that those feelings are real and they matter. And they're not a symptom of like being unfaithful or like not being positive enough. You know, they're just a natural part of the challenges of life, the challenges of being a human and having a brain and having, you know, anxiety and depression. That's a really good segment, Gretchen. And I wouldn't have understood that stuff wasn't for people like you that have sort of shared your stories with me and I thought happiness was a choice and I'm recognizing and I put this on Instagram let's don't create a culture that to be a faithful Latter-day Saint you need to be happy because that's Definitely. sometimes not in our control and mm-hmm. I like that you kind of we kind of want to make sure you're okay by kind of leading questions you're okay aren't you and Jake's in a better place and everything happens for a reason and these platitudes keep us, me, emotionally safe, but I think it it keeps us a little bit at arm's length from really sitting with you and and creating a safe place for you to talk to us about how we you really feel and and how important that is, and for you to and us to hear your feelings about how difficult this is and and not judge you for that or not think you're less faithful or you're and that's a really important principle of ministering that you're helping us with. Yeah, I, I also think, just to kind of add to that, something I realized too is I think wanting to comfort someone is a natural aspect of, of loving someone, right? You don't want people you love to be in pain. But I've, I've come to realize that it's more loving to, to meet people in their pain and, and try to carry their pain with them. You can't solve other people's pain. We all, of course, we all wish we could, right? We love people. We don't want them to be in pain, but, but we don't, we just have to accept, I think, to really vulnerably love people. I think we have to accept we cannot fix their pain. Meet people in their pain. I don't know if you've said that before, just said it for the first time of the podcast. That's really, you know, I can visualize that. Just sit with people and meet people in their pain. And I think you kind of said we can't take away their pain, but we can meet them in their pain. 
I love you being open about your own feelings about suicide and recognizing statistically, I think that once one family member has died by suicide, the risk is higher for other family members. Yes. Talk about how you're doing. Talk about um, what you'd say to other others that are because, you know, that are in the same boat you are. I've lost a family member to suicide and are, you know, actively considering your own suicide. Yeah. Um, well, to go into that, so the, I, so after Jake died, I would think about suicide all the time um, because I just couldn't understand it because me and Jake were very close. Um, he's someone who told me, you know, you're someone I can talk to. So I felt very at fault for his suicide. And I was just like, I want to understand this. So I would read, um, you know, uh, I actually, I remember a couple of times, which this was not a good idea, but I read um, experiences of people who had tried to kill themselves, what they had done. And I think I was just trying to figure this out. It could not click in my mind. And I was feeling quite depressed. I, I wanted to die. Um, I would kind of like plan different ways I could kill myself. Um, and I would create conditions and stuff about when it would be appropriate for me to. And, you know, while doing this, I really rationalized that this was normal because when someone dies by suicide, it's normal to think about suicide. I also didn't I, I didn't want to scare people. So I feel like more and more, I became very cautious about how I would talk about this to people. And um, one person I actually talked about my feelings of wanting to die with was my sister, Alana, um, before she died. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, there's so much shock going on for us. And, I, and I, I think I would just very cautiously say, you know, I really want to die. And, um, and she actually relayed to me. She's like, really? She was like, you know, I just really want to live. And I really want to raise June and Ruby and see them grow up. And, and she told that to me. That's her. That's still her dream even though she was struggling very hard with jake's suicide and feeling very sad she had her husband she loved and her baby she loved and so after she died i think it was a couple days after when i had to come back because they were in indiana we went out to indiana and i had to come back for work because you know you don't get very much time at all when someone dies. And unfortunately, bills still have to be paid. Life goes on. And um, so I was alone. And I, all of a sudden, I felt like I can't exist. And it's so interesting, because for me, it was not a feeling of I want to die. It was a feeling of I'm in so much pain. I cannot it wasn't even that I thought I would die and become a spirit. I was just like, I am done being anything. I'm done being anything. And I, 
I did begin implementing um, actually one of the things I'd read about on a, on a suicide post. And I, and I did stop. Um, but later on, I, when I was in therapy, I, um, what happened was my therapist actually gave me a CD. Um, and, and it was a lecture from another therapist about suicide. And they were talking about all the ways, different ways people can experience suicide. And one of them was described almost as a panic attack where you just, you're not in control of what your mind's doing to yourself. And the pain you feel is unimaginable. And the suicide does come out of nowhere, just like a panic attack can come out of nowhere. And I was like that, that was me. That was my experience. And I think learning about the different types of suicide there are, there's some suicide where people, you know, they, they, um, they really think about it for a long time. They plan a specific way to do it and they, they slowly get what they need in order to perform the suicide. There's other suicides where it is just a, a quick, um, almost like panic attack like thing. But I think what I get out of all of this is I think just be open. Even if you're having a little bit of scary thoughts, a little bit of suicidal thoughts, it's not a symptom that something is wrong with you. It's a symptom that you need support. Right. And I think it's so easy to feel ashamed or feel like, wow, something's wrong with me. Right. Like I'm, I'm, broken inside or, um, but I think it's really important to, you know, just like when you get physically ill, if you start having uncomfortable physical symptoms, the responsible thing is to go see a doctor. I think the same needs to be true with mental health symptoms. Even if you're feeling a little bit depressed, a little bit anxious, you don't need to shoulder that on your own. I just wish I had been more transparent with, with the ways I was thinking about suicide because, um, I've come to understand that, you know, what would have been, what would have happened if I had, if I had been open with, I did have a therapist at the time, if I'd been open with her about the suicidal thoughts I was feeling, I could have created a plan to implement. So I would know what to do when I had that scary panic attack feeling of suicide. I think the other thing this experience really taught me is when I was feeling that much pain, it wasn't that I was thinking, I don't feel loved by my family or I don't feel loved by my husband. You know, I still, even through these deaths, I love these people so much. You know, I feel loved by them so much, you know, like, um, my brother who's alive, my husband, my parents, my brother-in-law, my nephews, and you know, all the family I have on my husband's side. It's, it's not that I felt like they didn't love me or weren't there for me. It's, it's that I wasn't even capable of, of even understanding that there was any sort of future. All, all I could see and, and take in in that moment was pain. That's all that, all that was there yeah that's very helpful honestly very very helpful i've heard a lot of not a lot but many people sharing you were very good at articulating um 
I love where you articulated the immense pain. You're, it, and you just wanted the pain to go away. And you recognize yeah. people loved you. It wasn't a, a function of not being loved. It's just so much pain, just wanting to not exist, to not feel that pain. I love yeah. where you talk about different types of suicide. And it's probably helpful for people to, that I love your um, link or the similarities between a panic attack and, mm-hmm. and just sort of the short term um, getting in a really bad spot, very unplanned, very unpremeditated. Um, yes. And just, I think it's good to talk about that. So if your personality type is that, that you develop tools to get through that. Because mm-hmm. I think from what I know, panic attacks, they end. Um, and yeah, you're able to exactly. get through that. And so you probably need to be aware if that's part of your personality that if you're on the other side of this, you would obviously um, not want to die by suicide, but want to be able, just like you want to get through the panic attack and know there's better days ahead of you. Right. Well, and I think another thing too is, you know, when Jake died by suicide, I thought, oh my gosh, he doesn't want any more Christmases with us. He doesn't want, you know, his birthday was coming up and he was actually going to, we were going to meet up for lunch. He was going to come visit. Um, me and my, and, um, my parents and uh, me and my mom were going to go shopping for his birthday present. And so, um, it can feel like that, right? A suicide, it can, it can feel like, wow, he decided not to have a future with me. And I think the reality, at least for my experience was I, it was almost like I was in a hole. There was no future and there was no past. I was simply in a moment of pain. And it had nothing to do. It was like nothing else existed, you know? So, um, I mean, Jake, he had actually purchased bowling shoes for himself for his birthday, not long before he died. Um, because he took a bowling class with his friends and he really liked to bowl. And, and that just, you know, um, there are, there are definitely cases where, um, suicide is is premeditated and i still think you know i don't think in that case either people are choosing death over their loved ones i don't think it's simple like that um and i also think it's important to to recognize that all these experiences of suicide they're they're unique and we just don't it it leaves you with an unsolved mystery that you can't know and you always struggle with you know I think these words are really helpful to family members. I think of parents, you know, you've probably had lots of conversations with your parents. And I think these words are really helpful to parents that are listening that have lost a child to suicide. It's a parent's worst nightmare. It's a sister's worst nightmare. Um, But I think um, it helps us understand that really good families, this happens. And to really good people, Jake is a wonderful person. And this happened. Um, I'd love you to talk about Alana, June, and Ruby. Yes. Um, so, yeah, a little bit more about, especially June and Ruby. I, I haven't really talked about them. So, you know, they were only alive for 18 months, which is just um, tragically short. Um, but, yeah, so they were twins. And, you know, um, funnily enough, like, so they were identical twins. And I, feel like I kind of have this random like talent where I'm pretty good at telling twins apart. 
So as soon as Alana said, okay, I'm having twins. It looks like they're identical. I was like, okay, it is my mission. I want to be so good at, at telling these little girls apart. So what she would do is she would send me pictures of them because when you would see them, um, like move and interact, you could kind of tell which one was which because they're, you know, they're, they have different little personalities and it shows through in the way they move and the way their facial expressions are. Um, but yeah, I got really good at telling them apart just through these little pictures. Um, Ruby, she had a hemangioma, which is like a raised birthmark. She had that on one of her arms. So that was always a fail safe way to tell them apart when they, when you're in doubt, but um, yeah, Ruby had a much like, I would say rounder face, round eyes. She was much more like um, ready to let me hold her and, and cuddle her and um, very, she's very mischievous. I would say, I feel like she had a little glint in her eye and June, June was the older of the two and she um, was much more like very much like stranger danger. Like she would take a while to warm up to me and um, very like sensitive, like her emotions would just show through her face. Um, yeah, they're so sweet. And Ruby would say hi, their little voice. And June had just started saying doe, which we decided was dog because our, our family is a huge dog lover. So we were very excited by um, it seeming like June was going to be a dog lover. and. Yeah, Alana, she, um, so she went to BYU as well. She graduated in art. So she was an artist. She actually had a show she would have done in April of 2020. Um, so she was continuing to do her art as a, as a mom. Um, also just like, you know, having a sister as an artist, as a kid, I would always just like compare my art to hers when we'd go to art club together and stuff and be like, oh, her stuff is so much better than mine. But she was someone who, um, I feel like she and Jake were both similar in this, where they just really, they weren't like, really like competitive, like, like even as adults, like, um, I would sit with her and I would make art with her because it was fun. And obviously my art was so different and I'm just doing these little watercolors, but she'd be like, wow, I really like what you did there. Those colors there. Um, we took a little girl's trip to um, Chicago and went to the museum there. And this would, this would be our last, um, last trip together as sisters. And when we went there, she showed me this beautiful mural. And she said, this guy's art really reminds me of your art, <laughs> which I thought was so sweet because I'm not an artist. <laughs> like wow. I doodle, but, and, and she's so good at that. But there was no like pride or like comparison, anything like that. She just, I don't know. She just like saw people for who they were. And just like, I, I really just always felt so seen by her and so like respected for who I was. And I think definitely in mourning Alana, I mourn also like not being able to see what a kind mother she would have been to June and Ruby. And, you know, since I, I did have a child, after she died, just never being able to mother at the same time as her and get 
her advice, which I know would just be so loving and wise and just like, so like soft, you know? I'm in tears just thinking sometimes listeners, we put ourselves in situations and I'm thinking of your father, you know, um, he's lost and your mother have lost their only two grandchildren. Oh, you had a child. Oh, we, so my my brother, just younger than me, he has he has two sons. So they didn't lose all their grandchildren, but they lost two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they lost uh, both their granddaughters. Mm-hmm. Both their granddaughters, yeah. and they've lost their oldest yeah. child in this mm-hmm. horrific accident. And you've lost a sister, and all these. I I think of Elder Cook's talk a little bit sometimes when I think of this about the Titanic and the songs not sung, and you just talked about one that's really tender to me about your role as an older sister to co-mother together and all the conversations you'd have about raising these kids together that you can't have now definitely yeah i think that's something that as a sibling as an adult sibling um a lot of times people felt like when they would talk to me they would assume it wasn't really a big deal for me um but you know like me and jake we used to like when we'd call each other we'd look on houses um on zillow and be like okay this will be the vacation home we buy and we're gonna convince everyone to go in on it with us and um or we'd also call and i'd be like I think I'd like to move to Colorado one day. Would you live in Colorado with me? Like there's so many future plans and and same with my sister. Like we always planned when we got really old to live together. Um and yeah, there's so like um you know, this is actually making me think our last kind of like family vacation together. We were all in Tahoe. The kids were all asleep, my nephews and nieces. And, um, so it was all us, you know, kids and spouses and we just, you know, I think sometimes as siblings, you can all just kind of get kind of like little kids together again. So we decided to make up this little skit that we would show our parents. It was a bizarre skit about like, um, like I think Alana was like a mermaid. It was bizarre. It was like, really, but we were laughing so hard. And I remember in the middle of that skit feeling like an overwhelming feeling of love for my family and just thinking man in a couple years when we're all married and have kids just the love that's gonna be here i i was just so excited for my children to feel that sense of love and connection and my nieces and nephews to feel that sense of you know family connection even more and when someone dies, you don't just lose them. You lose like what they brought to your family dynamic. You lose any sense of wholeness you had, honestly. Life really just kind of crumples and becomes completely, completely different. Talk about how the church played a role. Um, kind of our lead in line here is I thought the church would be an anchoring force through all this. Yeah, Unless you want to this... talk more, I don't want to rush you away from your sister and your nieces, but just, you know, wherever you want to go next. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important part to bring up. Um, 
this is something that really kind of took me aback. You know, I will say religion's always been something, just religion as a whole has always been something that I think is a complicated thing. It's always been something I've kind of like struggled with aspects of it. Um, a lot of good can come out of religions and a lot of bad can come out of religions. I mean, look at history. You'll, you'll see it all over the place. Um, but I think, I think especially thinking about my spirituality from the gospel, right? These beliefs that God loves me, that, that God is there for me. And I think also, I feel like so many times when we hear really tragic or traumatic stories in church, the person says, and I'm not saying this isn't true for them. I definitely believe it is. The person says, but I felt God with me the whole time. I didn't feel that. I felt completely abandoned. Um, I, I, I wondered if God hated me, um, especially this idea that God has a plan. I was like, oh, so he planned for these deaths. And, you know, um, Lana, June, and Ruby, their car accident, it was very violent. Um, their death was very violent. I, it, very just... <laughs> Um, disturbing. And, you know, um, Alana was someone who was extremely sensitive to pain. And, you know, little, little babies going through that. Jake's suicide was also very violent and painful. And he was alone while experiencing that. It's a, and I thought, God planned for those deaths to happen. Well, God doesn't love them because I love them. And if he loved them more than I do, he would not allow that to happen. But yet I'm being told in church that God has all control. And that, and also, you know, I feel like um, something I'd always been taught in church is like, if you read your scriptures, if you say your prayers, you will feel God's love. But I felt when I would pray and read my scriptures, I would feel more alone. Now what I realized is I, a lot of it is trauma. You know, prayer was something that has become traumatizing for me because you always pray for your family to be safe. That was something I prayed for constantly after Jake died. So I, re- so I actually, I only write down my personal prayers now because it feels, and, and I don't, so my view of God has really changed and I had to allow myself to question my view of God, I had to allow myself to question, okay, what, what of these beliefs is church culture? What of these beliefs is, is gospel or from God? And it, it really allowed me, I think, to make spirituality feel even more like a personal experience for me. Um, there's a lot I don't agree with that is said when I go to church. Um, I don't believe God has control over this life. I believe this world is a fallen world where our bodies, you know, can turn on themselves and we can get diseases and die or our minds. And, um, I mean, there's just terrible things that happen in this world from, um, you know, abuse of all kinds, sexual, physical, emotional, and, and, um, uh, just there's terrible things and God, God is not creating that. God is good and God loves us. And I think I've realized, you know, all that goodness we're hearing about, it comes after this life. You know, the, the reality is I might have more traumatic things happen in this life. There's no quota for how much 
trauma a person can experience. Um, and I've realized that, that God, I do believe that God will be with me through that. And I think God helping me looks like, you know, I take medication for the anxiety and depression I felt. I see therapists, you know, there's tools in this life that can help me. Um, and I think those to me are signs of God's love. Um, actually learning about the body and how the body processes trauma helped me realize, I think this is a way God loves us because at a certain point you, you kind of go, um, after, um, I, I'm not going to explain this well, cause I'm not an expert, but basically when you reach a certain threshold of pain, you kind of check out and you, and you don't feel it in your, in your, um, mind or your body. And I realized that's a way that that's something Christ could do before putting us in this world. That is a fallen world that has awful things happen in it. He can't stop the pain. And I, and I believe that that breaks his heart as well when we experience pain, but he could create like, um, almost like boundaries in our body, in our minds to where we can just kind of block things out at a certain point. This is another really good segment. Um, I, I, it's kind of sobering, but probably realistic that you recognize, and maybe that's the most healthy way forward, that more trauma could come into your life. Because I think, obviously, maybe you thought after Jacob's death that this was it for our family. We've now, um, this is going to be, and then this subsequent imaginal tragedy happened. And maybe the only safe way emotional forward is just to recognize that you're in a fallen world and, um, and, um, this could happen. But, um, I also, if I can remember what you said, um, I thought it was really, I think the trauma of your prayers is, is a really good insight that you had prayed um, for safety for all these people for years and years, hundreds, probably thousands of Mm -hmm. prayers. And without those prayers being answered um, and a God having power to answer those prayers and keep your family safe, I think it's good that you connected the dots there, a therapist, that there's trauma. So I hope our listeners listen to what you did is you write down your personal prayers. Yeah. And I actually stopped praying for, I would say, um, maybe almost a year. Um, I really had to give myself permission to question all my beliefs. Um, and I still, I still do. Honestly, there's still days where I think, I don't know, is God real? I don't know. And I feel like allowing myself to question that, not feeling shame around questioning that, but instead realizing, of course, I'm questioning this. Of course I am. Look at, look at what's happened. Look at all the people that have died. Look at the world and all the pain that happens in this world. Of, of course I'm questioning if everything's going to be all right. That actually helps me kind of zoom out and recognize, you know what though? Overall, I do believe in love. I believe that there is something about love that binds us all together. And that that is because God loves us and because of the atonement and that the atonement and the love from the atonement will make everything okay in the end. 
right? But the pain right now is real. It doesn't take away the pain right now. You know, like the pain of trauma, maybe all my life I will have to deal with, you know, different aspects of PTSD coming in and out of my life. Um, And I think, you know, when I die, I won't have that anymore. And I think that's where God's plan comes in is once we're out of this, this world that is not his world, if that makes sense. Um, This is just how I've made sense of it, you know. (laughs) So talk about why you stay in the church. Yeah, so this is, you know, I definitely have concerns, um, especially having a child about raising him in the church and hearing certain phrases. And, um, but overall, what I've realized is I, I believe, I will say, I believe in the ordinances of our church. I believe in sealing families. I believe in, you know, the priesthood, all these things. And, um, I think what's felt so important to me is I believe that going to church is a way I can feel kind of closer to God. Um, Now, what that means is maybe different than what it used to mean, because sometimes when I go to church, I, someone says something that's very triggering, like, you know, I was almost in a car accident, but I feel God saved me from it. And I, I have to leave. I, maybe I step outside for a moment, come back, or maybe I'm like, I can't, this is too much. I have to leave for the day and that that's okay. But ultimately I do believe that going somewhere and worshiping God does help my relationship with God, that the, the guidelines, the morals from church, from religion, that kind of structure, I do think it helps me kind of figure out how to format my life in a way that I can feel closer to God. Um, And also a big thing is really reading what is the gospel, not what is church culture, what is the gospel that really dissecting that, that I'm like, oh yeah, I totally believe in the gospel. Like, you know, that God loves us, that we're all going to be together one day that you know, you look at the three degrees of glory, they're all beautiful. They're all great. God loves us all. And we're all going to be happy one day, you know, that I believe in. So I think really in some ways, separating the two has been really, um, essential for me, separating that the culture and the teachings. I often hear that I'm like, okay, that's, that's culture talking right now. That's not gospel. That's been very essential for me. I think that's a really healthy way to move forward. And I like the way you created a boundary that if you hear something triggering, you just leave. Mm-hmm. Are there other boundaries you've sort of created that uh, um, just so that you can make the work, church work on your terms? Yeah. Um, I think the first one would be respecting my own experience and respecting the experience of others. Um, I feel like this, going through this, And having an experience where, you know, also because Alana, June, and Ruby died on the way home from church, going into a church building can can sometimes feel unsafe, you know, because your body really stores um, all these memories. And um, I think just realizing, you know, trauma is real. And it's okay that I'm affected by it. It doesn't make me less of a a good follower of Christ. 
right? Listening to my pain, listening to when something's not feeling good to me and paying attention to that and being kind to myself um, and coping in whatever healthy ways I've learned. Overall, that's going to allow me to, I think, be a better follower of Christ because I can be more open with my experiences and use them to better love others, um, which is ultimately, I think, what God wants from us all. So I think it's just really, for me, making a boundary and making a decision to change, to allow my idea of what it looks like for me to be a disciple of Christ, to be extremely personal and not a generic idea of this, you know, perfect disciple of Christ um, says yes to callings all the time or, you know, um, like sits through a, a, doesn't speak up through a lesson that might be painful or, you know, just things like that, where you're like, just humble, you put your head down, you do the work. And, and I think now I've just realized, no, like, that's not what God wants. God doesn't want, you know, us to be little perfect, almost like (laughs) um, member robots. He wants us to be ourselves and to listen to what, what feels good and what feels right to us. And then um, kind of connect to other people through those really personal things. That's really good. Um, In our area this week, um, a family lost their um, son, roughly the same age as your brother. He's in his mid-20s in an automobile accident. We haven't had the funeral yet, and I'm thinking about the parents and the sisters. And um, Just talk to families. Um, You've done a good job of this already. But talk to families that have are listening that have just recently lost a loved one in a really difficult situation and kind of the prime of their life, like you've yeah. lost people in the prime of their life. Um, you know, uh, the first thing I would want to say, as sad as this is, this is something I really needed validation of, is I've lost most of my friends um, because. I think something I've realized is the way our society is, not only do we not know how to support people with mental health but difficulties, but I also don't think we fully know how to support people in pain. Um, it's very normal for people to lose, um, to lose their support group when they go through extreme hurt. So I would just say, you know, I really thought, well, there must be something wrong with me because I know these people are loving people. And I'm, and so I would just say, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the pain you feel. How natural to have your heart and your world break when someone you love dies. That's not a sign of unfaithfulness or a lack of positivity. It's, it's a sign of your love and the depth of it and the depth of connection we have with our family members. And honoring that and honoring your feelings is a, is a beautiful thing to do. It's an act of love for yourself and an act of love for the person who died. I would also say that like 
I feel like sometimes in our church culture, there's really, um, can feel like there's a push to, to really push ourselves to, you know, when you're in a hard spot, serve and, and work hard. And I would say rest, you need to rest. You need to give yourself permission to just, the world feels like it should have stopped. And so allow your world to stop in whatever ways you can. You know, our, our world does not honor heartbreak, but, you know, allow yourself to, to find ways to honor that heartbreak and honor how, how heavy that hurts. And then the other thing I would just say is really find safe spaces that makes room for how deep your pain is, you know, whether that's therapy, whether that's a good friend, um, you know, yoga has been helpful for me with trauma, art, um, just find a space where you feel like you can be true to yourself and how you feel without judgment. Um, that's so important. You know, I, you need support when you're going through these things. You need to feel supported and loved as you are and not feel like you have to get to a certain point to feel worthy of that love and support. That's a really good off-the-cuff segment, Gretchen. Um, I wrote down, allow your world to stop. That's yeah. a, I think your world has stopped. Yeah. And it'll never be the same. It'll start again yeah. in some way. But I love that. I think of our culture sometimes. I think of sometimes when a family member dies, when a missionary is out, and there's kind of this culture that faithful missionaries just kind of bucket up and stay out there and don't yeah. come home. And I hope our culture improves a little bit that if it's possible to come home, that we don't create a culture that um, coming home is a sign of weakness during a mission. Um, it's part of the path i think to healing and and if a missionary um can't come home or feel this path isn't to come home that we allow their world to stop as a missionary and we give them a lot of space to process the loss of a loved one and for some that will be to work really hard and for some it will be not to work very hard and we create a culture that they need to figure out that for themselves um that's a really good segment um you're married um, your husband's probably mm-hmm. been trying to help you, and maybe at times he's done a really good job, and at times, like me, hasn't done the best job as we're helping our spouses. But talk about to spouses that have, you know, their spouse is going through things that you're going through, what they can do. And you've kind of talked about this already, but are there specific things a spouse can do? Oh, you know, it's it's funny because... um. So my, I think it's very, it's very natural, right? To want to like solve the person you love, solve their pain and take away their pain. Um, and I know we talked about that earlier, but that's definitely something um, with my husband early on. I felt like he would try to comfort me. He's a very like just sensitive, kind person. And um, I remember what I eventually did, which was really helpful, is I showed him a video that showed how when someone's in pain and you comfort them, you kind of put up this wall. Um, So what it was is it showed a person in pain and they were surrounded by a black cloud. And when the person tried to, it, it shows a person trying to like, 
push, I think hearts on them or something. And when that happened, the, the black cloud around the person just got bigger. When the person dropped the like hearts and rainbows and instead entered that black cloud with them, it was able to envelop both of them and, and become smaller because, you know, essentially as we talked about, you know, that pain is kind of carried by, by someone else. And man, my husband, he's been so good at when I'm in pain, just saying, Oh, I'm sorry. This is, this is so hard. I would also say another thing I think has been helpful is, you know, I've really tried to work on, on feeling compassion, compassion instead of pity. So, um, recognizing that yes while uh, my grief is so real my pain is so real so is the pain of everyone else and I think it's been important for me to be able to tell my husband you know just as I have lost people so have you um you know we were married for quite a while and he had a great relationship with Jake and Alana and June and Ruby as well and I think also acknowledging I'm now different than I used to be and that's hard for me And that's hard for you in some ways. And just being really open about that, that this is hard for everyone. Um, Definitely right off the bat, I would say for the first like year and a half, that's not, you know, at first, I think definitely I just needed the space to fill my pain. But um, I think after I've been able to work through that trauma, I've been able to create more space and we've been able to create more space together where we can share our experiences and really respect one another's experiences and really, um, yeah, I just think respecting each other's experiences and understanding that both of your pain is valid, you know, it's different and it all matters and it, and it's, it's all valid. It's a good segment. And before we went live, listeners, um, Gretchen talked about what you kind of or just did. You can't rank people's pain. Do you want to talk any more about that concept? Can't rank people's pain? Definitely. So this has been something that's been really important for me to figure out because when all this loss happened, a common phrase I would hear is, I can't imagine what you've been through um, or I could never survive what you have. Um, and, and, you know, I will say they can't imagine, I think there's truth to that. Definitely. I think, and, and, you know, there's times when I've said that when people have said that, and I've really been like, wow, you know, that means a lot, but there's times when it just feels so isolating because I feel like what that person is saying, especially when they say I could never have survived what you have, I feel like what they're saying is there's something fundamentally different about you. And because there's something different about you you can handle worse pain than I ever can. And I don't know pain like you do. But what I realized as I've, I think, been able to validate my own pain, but also really appreciate that everyone hurts. Everyone experiences losses of different kinds. You know, I, I will never experience other pain that people experience, you know, like, I, like, Yes, the the losses I've experienced are massive and there's so many heartbreaking experiences I have never been through. 
And I think acknowledging that, acknowledging that in some ways we're all isolated because we're all living our own lives in our own minds. And there's something isolating about that, right? Like no one will ever fully understand what it is like to be me, Gretchen, and go through my experiences, just like no one will fully understand what it is like to be you, Richard, and know what you've experienced in your pains. And I think realizing that is it's helped me realize that my hurt deserves respect. It deserves to be heard. And the pain of everyone deserves to be heard and respected. And I think allowing ourselves to connect over how isolating and painful it can be to be human, as sad as that sounds, I think actually that that creates more room to really connect and feel love that we are all in this together, right? At once we are all isolated, but we are also incredibly connected. We all feel grief. We all feel sad. We all, I mean, these emotions, they're all, they're all universal. And I think we can gain some understanding when we recognize that we're all more similar than we think. And as you talk about that, I think of our culture right now and most congregations doesn't allow that. We sort of go to church and put on our very best selves and have our best dancers and our um, yeah. best moments. And often the reality of our lives um, is very different than what we are allowed to share at church. And we really heal each other, as you just described, by sharing our woundedness and our brokenness and the reality of our lives. And I think that's a sign of strength, not of weakness, to be honest about our lives. Yeah. And, Culturally, we, you know, we have leaders like some wards have people that kind of change the culture because they're open. And this podcast platform, what you're doing for people that are listening all over the world, it'll, it helps us. Um, this is a tender question. If Jacob could come, you know Jacob as well as anybody. <laughs> if he could talk right now, what would he say to everybody? Jake is just someone who is so full of compassion, compassion without judgment. You know, and I, this actually makes me think of a, I have a letter from him, from his mission. Talked about how as a missionary, people would come up and confess things to him. And he talked about this man who came up and confessed really awful things to him. He wasn't a member of the church, just a guy. And Jacob said, he just told him like, that is so hard. And you can, you know, you're like, you're God's child and God loves you. And, and kind of like, you can do this. And I think just that is what Jake would say is that no matter what you feel like you've done, no matter how unworthy you feel, like you are a child of God, like that is a fact. And you are loved by him, whether you feel worthy of it or not. And so you, you can do this and there are people who will love you. Even if you don't feel like you've found them right now, that, that is real. You know, the, the love 
whether you find that one day in a therapist or a friend who you finally feel accepted by, or even just a, a stranger who is kind to you, there is love for you here in this world. Wish I'd met your brother. <laughs> a lot of people, the world's a better place because of the work Jake does and continues to do. You honor him and others that continue to talk about your brother, Jacob Norman. Um, listeners, this is just a great podcast. I'm deeply moved by Gretchen. She's, you know, 30, young person still with an 18-month boy who I think has a name. Talk about his name if you want to and how that ties into your brother, yeah. Jacob. So um, his name is Raylan Kobe. Raylan is actually after a show me and my husband watched um, about a, a cowboy named Raylan. Um, but Kobe, so Jake, when he was young, his um, we had a nickname for him called Jacoby. And, you know, I got pregnant or I found out I was pregnant very shortly after Alana, June and Ruby died. So, of course, very shortly after Jake's suicide. And when I found out it was a boy, you know... I, I wanted to bring Jacob into that name, but to be completely transparent, I was very worried about how it would affect this little boy. Yeah. You know, the suicide of my brother, I felt like what a heavy weight that would be to carry. Um, because of the death of suicide is very heavy. And so this is something me and my husband would talk about a lot. And, um, my mom actually was listening to, uh, I think like a podcast or something and a man had called in and he had, I, I want to say he had bought a dog and I think his son has died. His son's name was Jacob and he named the dog Kobe. Now the reason I, this works so well is because my parents actually knew they were going to name Jacob his name after after meeting a dog named Jacob. And again, our family is a huge dog lovers. Jacob and me, we are obsessed with dogs. We would send each other pictures of dogs. We would follow the same accounts of dogs on Instagram and talk about those dogs. We're just obsessed with dogs. So that just also felt like, um, honestly, like a little sign of Jake from Jake as well that, that my mom got to give to me of, you know, this is a way to kind of bring Jake into his name, but it has a lighter feeling to it, which I think also feels good because that's really, I think sometimes with the death of suicide, it can feel like it overshadows that person, right? It overshadows who they were. And, and Kobe, that's a very light name. Feels kind of like, like, um, it's got a sense of humor to it. And I think that just felt like a great way to, to bring Jake's light and his, his kind of like innocence into, you know, into our son's name. I love that. I, that's very helpful. Listeners, you just will share a couple of thoughts and then have Gretchen share any concluding thoughts, but I've shared this every now and again in the podcast, but it's 
I remember giving a YSA a blessing who had served in the military and in the course of his assignments knew that innocent life had been taken and he was pretty torn up about that. And as I put my hands on his head, I had no idea what words I would ever share with him that could help him. And the words that came into my mind from God were of no one's eternal possibilities of change because of what happened. And certainly mortal possibilities had changed and life had been lost. And that listeners kind of took me to the 40,000 foot level of the plan of salvation. Um, and what I believe with all the people that have, you've lost and listeners have lost is um, certainly mortal possibilities, songs unsung, um, using other cooks words from the Titanic sinking. There's a lot of songs that are unsung and a lot of, I don't know why are you talking about your sister and co-parenting and sharing these stories. That just, that practical example of having your sister gone just kind of got right to my heart. So incredible, you know, mortality has changed, but I think every eternal possibility for Jacob, um, for Alana, for Ruby and Jane hasn't changed. And I think you taught that when you talk about the next life. And this life is just brutal, and it's a fallen world, and we're wounded. Oh. And the older I get, the more I see the woundedness in myself and in others. I think you're, so that's a thought, listeners. I hope that's not just a simple platitude to just dismiss the pain. I don't want to use that to say you shouldn't feel pain. Um, I also think this is a great credit to your parents if they're listening for who you are, Gretchen. I think this is a proud moment for them to hear you talk like this and bring honor to everybody that's lost and who you are and the way you talk about this and the incredible wrestle that you've undertaken to be where you are. And you're not at the finish line, no one's at the finish line, but you've done great work here and you're talking about it and you're helping and it honors, it honors them, it honors Jake, it honors Alana. And Ruby and Jane, and is so helpful for these listeners. About ten to twenty thousand people will listen to this podcast, and they'll share it with others. And your voice and perspective will help. And I think if your parents are listening, you know, credit to you. You're living your worst nightmare. And but and Gretchen doesn't want me to overpraise her on the podcast, but you're. <laughs> it's a sign of just what a wonderful set of parents you have to embrace such a remarkable daughter with such great skills and it is a credit to your family and you have a great family and and suicide can come into really great families yep. so i'll turn it back to you gretchen for any final comments then we'll sign off yeah i think um just the last thing i would want to leave people with especially anyone who is grieving or feeling traumatized or feeling despair um a lot of times it can feel like you're pushed to be hopeful. And I do think hope is good, but a quote that has really helped me is hope against hope. I think it's from a scripture actually to hope again, that we hope against hope. And for me, that really brings home that, you know, the despair we can feel in this life is real and it matters. You know, the darkness, the, the trauma, it is real. And yet we can, even against that, we can bravely hold on to hope 
and we can hold on to the amazing, beautiful fact that in the face of, of really deep darkness, we are somehow able to keep loving people, to feel the love of others, and feel the love of God. And I think there's something I found to be very hopeful about love and even small moments of love. So I just want to leave that with everyone that, that just really hold on to those moments of love you feel because they're real and they matter just as much as, as all the darkness matters. That's great. So listeners, thank you for tuning in. This is Gretchen Evans, who did such a great job. And Richard Osley, your host, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.